So what is Christianity? It starts with this rabbi, Jesus, spreads to like a few people. He's got these followers that hang around him. And it starts to spread, starts to spread. And uh, lots of disagreements early on, lots of different ways of interpreting Jesus and, and what he wanted from his followers and, and what we should do with that information. And then a church develops, Christianity, Christendom develops and starts taking some odd turns. The oppressed eventually become the oppressors of others and it becomes a power system. And then the, within that power system, there is there is there's a lot of fighting. There's arguments. There's uh, how do we stay together as one body, as a, as a unified body? How do we fulfill the prayer that Jesus prayed for us in the garden that we would be one as Jesus and his father were one and here we are today after great schisms and reformations thousands at a time <laughs> and it's as it is now now we've got tens of thousands of denominations with wildly different views of scripture of God of Jesus of the whole thing and we go back to that garden and we say, how in the world do we even start uh, in a pluralistic, splintered environment like we're in now? How can we be one as Jesus and his father were one? And that's what we're going to we're going to jump in today in the Liturgy Podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm Michael Gunger. I'm Lisa Pano. I'm Science Mike. We're just podcast is a place where we discuss issues through the lenses of faith, science, and art. And today, a uh, little change of plans. Doing something a little different. Yeah, what happened? A news article came out from a certain Christian source. Uh, just, I don't even know what to say. I don't <laughs> I just hate it. <laughs> it's so lame. We're going to talk about church unity because there is none on the internet. And uh, it got me thinking about Christianity and how Christianity could be argued that it's nothing but a call for unity amidst disunity. <laughs> because, like Michael said, you started wow. with a guy. That was awesome. Sorry, yeah, of I course. You. I liked that. I piss excellence. Like, <laughs> and he pisses humility too. Yeah, well, actually, does. I'd like to introduce you to a concept called false bravado, and sometimes you project maximal confidence to hide maximal insecurity. It's quite impressive. Is that the um, humble brag? What's different about that than the humble yeah, brag? Yeah, wait a second. The humble brag means like I'm actually proud and pretending not to be. False bravado is pretending to be proud when you're actually afraid you're a fraud. Well, you know what? There's not a difference on this side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> So science, right. science, I mean, we have, we have an amazing special guest that we're about to get uh, to have a conversation with here, and uh, Rachel Held Evans, who we're big fans of, 
But before uh, we get into that part, maybe science, Mike, are there any science issues that we should be aware of in discussing uh, this sort of thing? Just to, you know, set the tone with science. All this stems from human brains. Who would have thought that I'm going neurological with this? Um, when you study religious people by scanning their brains, you find um, that one of the primary things religion does for people is create a sense of identity. So this is especially true of anyone who would consider themselves a fundamentalist. Um, fundamentalists tend to ha uh, have very literal readings of scripture, for example, or have very, very specific and defined beliefs about God. And in those cases, the thing that provides them the most reassurance is certainty. And so the fact that we all agree about exactly who God is and exactly what God is doing in the world actually lowers stress and inoculates people um, against a loss of social identity. And when we talk about church unity, what is so difficult about it and so supercharged is you have all these tribes that are kind of under this one larger umbrella tribe of Christianity, uh, but they have radically different beliefs. And most of these groups consider themselves to be the one true Christianity. And so to remarkably, neurologically, the way these communities seek unity is by trying to get everyone else to believe with their particular brand of Christianity. Uh, if, if we thought in retail context, it said, listen, America, we can all be together. We can be unity. We just all need to buy Coke. None of this Pepsi stuff. Only buy Coke. And that is loved by human brains. It's thrilling. It's exciting. This guaranteed social place and all I have to do is agree on what I believe with everyone else in my community. And that's, isn't it an interesting thing? Like, who gets to determine uh, what it even means, what Christian means? I've seen some, some of the uh, questions we're having on on Twitter, Conrad Yoder asked, put another way, what is the core belief practice that truly unifies us? If we can't agree on, then what can we or should we part with? It's such a weird thing with so many branches and definitions of Christianity now. What does it even mean? I mean, it used to, the, the big, the great schism in like the 11th century, parts of the church couldn't agree. And so they stopped fellowshipping and went different directions. Um, and then it happened again in the Reformation, and then all of a sudden, you know, 500 years later, and then now 500 years later after that, tens of thousands of times we have these little Reformations. These people don't have it right, so we're going to take the word to mean this, and, you know. Uh, and it's such a weird thing, like, who even gets to define it anymore? <laughs> what it means, or what, what are the core doctrines? And so it's, it's so just subjective, and it's a weird place to be in history. It's a movement where no one agrees what the movement is. Yeah. It's really weird. And it's taxonomically frustrating for sociologists and, and anthropologists. Um, because deciding what is and is not Christianity um, is difficult. Because you have all these edge cases. 
uh, you know, Mormons would say, yeah, we're part of the church. And most Christians would say, no, they're not part of the church. So if you're a, a secular sort of uh, anthropologist, how do you decide what what denotes the line between, you know, Christian and non-Christian? Especially because there just there is no unified answer uh, in across churches. I think any one given church would certainly have an answer. Uh, I think any one given denomination would have an answer. But when you consider the plurality and of numerous Christian denominations, I don't I don't think there is a single rallying call. Other than we all say Jesus a lot statistically. All right. Well, let's talk to Rachel about it. Welcome, Rachel Held Evans, to the program. We've uh, we had we're about to record a different episode on uh, race and Amina Brown, who's been part of some of the liturgist offerings so far um, was going to be a part of that podcast and she was actually in the middle of a move and it was really crazy and we're like should we just like postpone this this topic and and let you move and she was like that would be amazing so uh, she got off and all of a sudden you know what we were all talking about anyway was this article that Charisma News posted uh, that we'll get into in a second but our dear friend uh, and previous liturgist contributor Rachel Held Evans was tweeting about it, and we sent out a tweet, and we were all on Skype and recording within, like, 90 seconds. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> it's a miracle, folks. So basically, none of us have a life on Sunday night. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta somebody say... somebody tell us about what's going on? Yeah. Well, uh, what, here's what I saw. Uh, I saw a tweet from Rachel uh, mentioning... Uh, you, Michael, and Charisma News, which is a topic I literally could not be more tired of. Um, <laughs> and then I noticed, wait, no, it's actually about genocide? What? No, what? why would Charisma News write about genocide? They don't strike me as like a social justice publication. <laughs> and then I clicked the link. And in this article, uh, which is entitled, you know, Why I'm an Islamophobe, uh, I think that's the actual title, Basically, the author lays out um, why discrimination against Muslims is justified. And in this article, and I really wish I was making this up, uh, a few things are advocated. One would be sterilizing Muslims. Um, another thing would be um, deporting them all now. In fact, the acronym was DAM, Deport All Muslims Now. And the final point was violence. Um, now, I, uh, I clicked on the comments thread on this article expecting moral outrage, <laughs> and that's not what I found. There's a, uh, the article's got coming up on 8,000 shares and quite a few comments in support of the author um, against violence and oppression and discrimination against people just because of their religion. The author uh, asserts that anyone who's a true Muslim is an extremist, and therefore uh, the sorts of radical actions advocated in the piece are justified. And I don't get angry very often, especially not about things on the internet. I mean, it's the internet. Uh, but this is a piece that literally made my face flush red and made me angry as I read it. It also made me feel pretty good 
about having been slammed by this publication, um, to be honest with you, um, because, it, <laughs> but as I sort of contemplated on that, these are people who profess to follow the same God and the same Jesus that I do. And I've heard some people, you know, from the conservative side assert that, you know, people like me are a different religion than they are. And I've always resisted that idea. But for the first time in my life, speaking very vulnerably in this moment, I have to wonder if they're right. So in this episode of the Liturgist Podcast, we're talking about church unity and what that means in the light of true, true, true diversity in what we believe and how we approach this story. I mean, Rachel, do you want what what's what's going on in your head right now? How did you see this article? What what are your thoughts? Oh well, I mean, I honestly, I, I wish I was more surprised. Maybe it's partly my location in East Tennessee. Uh, we had a, a mosque uh, go up in Murfreesboro not long ago. Uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, is just down the road from my area, which is Chattanooga. And uh, those folks experienced just quite a bit of vandalism, threats lots of editorials that were very uh, violent uh, about and very, you know, Islamophobic. And so on, I heard this sort of rhetoric from uh, Christian friends and from uh, folks from this area. So it honestly, it wasn't that big of a surprise to me, though it's, it's upsetting and discouraging every, every time I see it. And I was a little surprised to see something that violent, particularly you know, talking about sterilization and forced deportations and, uh, you know, stocking up on your guns. And it, it took it to quite a new level. I was a little surprised to see that in a relatively mainline or you know mainstream Christian publication. But I um, wish I was more surprised, but I'm not. I, I think there's beneath all of this, the reality is, is, you know, Islamophobia is a serious problem that we do have in this country among many of our fellow Christians. And so these views, though troubling and very upsetting, I don't think they're as marginal and as obscure as some people would like to think that they are. I've seen this manifested many times uh, before. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I'm like, where's my jaw? Well, the other day I, I got into a bit of a discussion with a, a friend that I went to college with and we were talking about something on Facebook and he he started writing about how Christians in the Middle Ages were more quote unquote prepared to deal with the Muslim threat and then made some allusions to the popes who supported the uh, Crusades and had some, you know, had some praise for those particular popes and had some good things to say. And I was like, yeah, I don't really think that's. He was being critical of Pope Francis for reaching out to Muslims. So we kind of got into a little bit of debate over it and it ended it with him saying, essentially, anyone who's a friend of Muslims is not a friend of mine. And he unfriended me right away. So sometimes I'm surprised <laughs> by it fresh, but what? It, <laughs> maybe it's, y'all need to come down to Tennessee where this. Yeah. Listen, I'm on, I, I am understand. in the Bible belt. Yeah. <laughs> what? I don't even understand. Holy cow. That's that's honestly hard for me to believe. I, I mean, I know that there are strong prejudices against the Muslim group in our country, but I would, n I literally, I wish you could have heard me reading this. I I was blown away. Like I was like, this is not rational thought to me. Like yeah, rational doesn't usually factor into the. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll be talking to Dan and I'm just like, but it's not rational about it, any number of things that I have issues with. And he's like, Rach, you really need to quit being disappointed when, when folks don't pay. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I am. Well, as the brain science guy, um, I'll be honest, I'm not surprised when people aren't rational. That That's totally true. But what I mean is culturally, people are driven by social identity. And what stuns me is that there's still enough people of this particular mindset and in the church that people can feel safe using terms like sterilization, forced deportation, and violence. It stuns me. It grieves me. It shocks me. Um, the more I think about it, I'm not coming to more of a peace about it. No, this is, the, I mean, it's the same stuff that drove the Crusades, right? I mean, it's the same, it's the, it's the ugliest thing that religion can be. This is why atheists think religion is bad. This is it. This is the test case. This is where Richard Dawkins, this is where Daniel Dennett, this is where their ammo comes from, is when religious people say and do and support things like this. This is an, like almost a, an, a rhetorical version of ISIS, um, yeah. where they're not yeah. actually doing violence, but they are certainly condoning and encouraging it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why sometimes I wonder if religion is good for the world, to be honest. You know, you're listing out atheists and folks, but this is the sort of thing that makes me think, oh my goodness, I'm just so tired of the whole thing. You know, can any good come of this? But at the same time, I will say I've been encouraged to see a, a variety of Christian folks from quite a few different traditions speak up against the article uh, one example is Russell Moore, you know, Southern Baptist guy, um, very prominent in the Southern Baptist world, who I wouldn't necessarily expect to have strong words against this, uh, you know, which shows some of my prejudice there. But he spoke out against it, and I've seen, you know, Pentecostal people speak up against it since it's, you know, kind of a charismatic publication. Uh, so on the other hand, we do see we see all that support in the comment section, but we also have, are seeing some pushback from a variety of Christians, and not just sort of your typical progressive type Christians, but also conservative Christians. So I guess I found that somewhat encouraging in the midst of what is a discouraging day. I grew up in the SBC um, and, and was a, a Baptist my whole life. And, um, and that's why I was shocked by the piece, because I feel like I have a heart for, and I know conservative Christians very well, and despite a lifetime, I mean, a, a full lifetime immersed in that culture, I never heard concepts like sterilization being thrown around. Um, so how, how big a subculture do you guys think this is? What does it look like sociologically and demographically? Where, where is the, the bomb, bomb, bomb Iran Church of America? Yeah, I always thought this was like this, the stuff I've been seeing um, the last month, just with some of the people that have been responding to me about stuff, about all the, you know, all that. I I have been so shocked. I mean, maybe, I think they're just loud, but there's, I, I uh, before this month, I really kind of thought that a lot of this like extreme borderline violent conservative fundamentalism um, was far more limited, like, you know, like Westboro Baptist Church and a few, like a few cultish groups in the country or something. But man, it's, uh, there seems to be a, a lot of comments if it's only a few people. 
I mean, what do you think, Rachel? Are they all are they do they all live in your town or something? A <laughs> <laughs> larger percentage than live in your town, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I also you also see it sort of popularized uh, to a degree with, uh, for instance, the Duck Dynasty thing uh, and that reality show. You know, the the article actually quotes that recent interview that Bill Robertson gave with the with Fox News, where he says basically convert Muslims or kill them. Uh, and that's, you know, Duck Dynasty has become really popular among conservative evangelicals. And this isn't the first time they've gotten in trouble for saying things that are deeply offensive to uh, black people, for instance, uh, to gay and lesbian people, for example. And, you know, but the, this evangelical culture can't seem to sort of let go of this love affair they have with the Duck Dynasty crew, which represents sort of like this Americanized version of Christianity that is that departs, in my opinion, from the real gospel in a lot of ways. So, but it's it's making it more mainstream, I think. And and you know, they even got a they have a Duck Dynasty Bible that they're putting out, which is ah, makes me a little crazy. But um, yeah. So I, I think it's in some ways it's been popularized by. Uh, folks like the the Duck Dynasty crew that have been saying these sort of things for a, a while now, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's I think also the internet people are more likely to to share these sort of views on the internet where they can be anonymous, and they're more likely to exaggerate those kind of views when they're anonymous. So I don't know how pervasive it is, but I think it might be more pervasive than people suspect because I have friends and. Um, people in my community who I know believe this and who it's very difficult to have a conversation with them about it because it's so clouded by fear. It's just, I think we sometimes underestimate how irrational and how hateful and how lost we can be when we succumb to fear. So I guess the direction that we thought would be an interesting one to take this conversation um, because, you know, just talking about how foolish and backwards and evil a, a thought and an article and a viewpoint like that is, we're probably going to be preaching to the choir for most people that listen to the Liturgist podcast. Um, I, I think we've got a significant number of people who listen because they hate us. I mean, I think they're there. <laughs> But don't you think most, I, I got to think that most people, you say, should we kill all the Muslims? Like all the Muslims, should we kill them? I got to, I got to hope I, there's, there's a part of my heart that will die if I can't hope that most people are going to say that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. Like you there, let's take this people group and let's make it so they can never have a baby. They can never hold their yeah. own baby. Yeah, the they argument was that's babies. not even going to be effective enough. We got to kill them, or we can't. That won't be practical. So we just got to wage a just war. So, so anyway, what's hard for some for me is, I mean, I just wrote this article that's trying to like put to bed all the Genesis stuff that people have been, <laughs> that we've been talking about um, for the last few weeks, and it's basically an appeal for church unity and it's appeal for like listen guys what we agree on is so much more important than these little things like how we interpret genesis but i don't know that what we agree on 
is more important than uh, we shouldn't kill all the Muslims. You know, like if 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 we're sharing the same language and the same Jesus, we're but if we say the end result that we're all going for is Jesus, but one Jesus wants to kill all the Muslims, what how? Like my whole thing and our thing, a lot of what we've been about as the liturgist period has been, guys, we're on the same team. Let's put aside our differences. But what makes one Christian on the same team as another? What is the end goal? Because for me, this is what I was writing about in this piece, uh, you know, to say Jesus, I think that's a good answer. But I think you could at that point also say, which Jesus? You know, I think that's what a lot of people have been asking me because I've been trying to say, you know, I love Jesus. I, I still am wanting to follow Jesus with this and saying, but what Jesus, if you're, if you're denying Genesis, what Jesus are you talking about? And I think you could say that from all sides. If we just say Jesus as like a word, um, which is an, you know, an English word, like what are we, what, what, what is that? It's a word. So what is the Jesus that we're all going after? And to me, like we should at least have some sort of idea of, is this the Jesus that said, that everything hangs on the commandments, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And everything hangs on that. And that's the Jesus, when I say, if we agree on that Jesus, we're all, we're all going for the same thing. It doesn't matter about what I think about Genesis, what you, you know, our disagreements about women in ministry, as annoying as that kind of stuff can be, and as interesting as the conversation can be, but at the end of the day, let's find a way to to reconcile our differences because we're going for the same thing. Where does that line? Is there a line there? How how can we be on the same team? Are we on the same team? Is there t- can we be not on a team at all? Is that even possible? You know, one thing that I've I've noticed when people are trying to kind of like size me up to see what team I'm on or to see if I'm really orthodox, to see if I'm in the club or I should be out. They always ask me about what I believe. Rarely do they ask about the fruit in my life. You know, do I exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Wait, did I leave one out? I always leave one out. Anyway, (laughs) faithfulness, that's the one I always leave out. I don't know what that means, but... um, but, you know, people always ask about sort of what we believe, our opinions on things, when really, you know, when we look at how Jesus taught us to identify one another, it's by how we love one another, how we love other people, how we love our enemies, and by the fruit in our life. And we know what the fruit of the Spirit is. So I, I guess for me, it's not so much whose team are we on. I don't know that we can ever figure that out based simply on intellectual assent to a set of propositional truths. I think we judge that and determine that based on the fruit in our lives. But it it amazes me. I'm never really, people often send me this litany of questions to try and determine where I am, um, you know, what group I'm in. And it, it rarely has, it never has anything to do with the fruit in my life. And really, I hope that that's what people are judging me by. And that's how I, I don't know, that's how I kind of see this particular situation. I want to, like, stand up and be like, yes! (laughs) It's so weird to me how we separate belief into this thing where that's where grace doesn't apply to people that believe differently than us. 
But don't you think that's because we? I feel like, at least since I've grown up, I've always heard like from the pulpit, it's not. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. It's not about the deeds. It's about the belief. I mean, I feel like that's so drilled into us. Well, these are outgrowths of particular developments in human psychology. So in the earliest bits of human civilization and human awareness, our belonging to a tribe, our membership was based on just that belonging. Were we blood relatives? Um, Were we geographic participants in a particular culture? If so, we belonged. Um, And then you sort of had this forward movement which, frankly, the emergence of Judaism was a significant part of that started to take, uh, you know, physical belonging and move that into a belonging based on belief. If you believe these things, then you are part of the tribe. Uh, Obviously, Christianity uh, is a very, very popular example of that, 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 that development in human awareness. It doesn't matter if we grew up in the same tribe. It doesn't actually matter if we share the same language as long as we share the same beliefs. And what you're seeing now, both in the church but as a larger social context, is that uh, it's moving into behavior. The things you do determine your belonging in the tribe. So when we start, we see this 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 language among younger Christians, um, but also among uh, unbelievers and, and non-religious folk, that uh, the things you do determine whether you're part of the tribe or not. Are you are, are you philanthropic? Are you charitable? Are you uh, tolerant? All these sorts of things. And it becomes a, a behavior-based fence. So to me, a really interesting thing is you have Christianity, this, this movement, an incredibly ideologically diverse movement of people who claim there's something special about Jesus Christ. There's a divinity even to this person where you have some people who are still thinking of Christianity in the context of belief other people who are moving towards belonging, and you have different criteria for understanding what makes you in or out, and it fuels this debate about sort of doctrine versus deeds, or, you know, fruit versus belief, this this back and forth. And, you know, part of me wants to say that they're both oversimplifications, but, but at the other hand, I, I kind of find myself in the deeds camp. <laughs> I would rather call someone my brother. I'll give you an example. My church recently uh, attended a Ramadan feast to break the fast of Ramadan. Uh, not only were Christians present, but Jews were present, along with uh, Muslims from Turkey. And it was an incredible experience. And, and those Muslims were phenomenal hosts. And even though all this conflict was happening um, with Hamas and with Gaza and with Israel, they still decided to host that dinner at a Jewish temple. And so th- they displayed this incredible uh desire for peace. Not only did they host a dinner, they then invited my pastor, a female clergy, to Turkey. They paid for her to go to Turkey to tour sacred sites and meet with secular and religious leaders in Turkey in the context of Islam. And so when I look at the fruit, and here's where all the tweets come in angry, but when I look at the fruit, those Muslims seem more like my brother's than someone who would pen an article about killing those same people. And yeah, I mean, I'm like, the problem, the the hard thing about saying even deeds-based, though, is like, how do you not become just another camp then that is applying your own values and ideals and morals? And then if you don't specifically meet exactly like 
my standards, you're out. And how does how does how do we on that other side not just become another subtly violent group that eventually somebody in our group now says, you know what, we should kill all those people that want to kill all the Muslims. And how you know how does it not just perpetuate into another word the more enlightened haters, but at the same time to still have some sort of value judgment because there's like uh, to just say well you know it's just I guess everybody's got their own thing and you don't get anything done nothing gets better nothing gets healed no reconciliation happens if it's just um, but I guess if your standard is love that that's a pretty safe standard I feel like on some level but there's just this idea that I want to be for me personally, I see myself um, connected to the the ISIS guy and the guy that's getting beheaded as a human being. I'm part of the same story. I'm part of the same stardust. I'm part of the same um, power systems on some level. Like I'm influenced in a different way and I'm part of the whole thing and we're all in this together, humankind. And so there's part of me that wants all tribes, I want to try to transcend all tribes if possible. Um, but how do you move forward? How do you, how do you move towards the things that Jesus calls us to move towards peace and love and reconciliation without some, you know, and maybe this is the time when you call like you see Jesus at times, not just speaking in, with butterflies and rainbows, but saying you are whitewashed tombs and you are using the law for destruction and your sons of hell. And you see that kind of thing from Jesus occasionally. And to know when to do that is hard because that's the same thing that a lot of, most of the people on this phone call have had things, those words spoken to us. Um, and when it's just a subjective judgment, you know, I don't, I disagree with you. So you're a son of hell. Uh, it's just, ugh, it's hard. I mean, my retirement plan is now a jar with the word false prophet on it. <laughs> And I just put a dollar in it every time I hear that word. Surprise, I'm not on your level yet. I need to say something just totally outrageous. Just so I can be in your group. You're a woman, so it'll happen sooner than you. <laughs> I just it'll wait. be easier for you. Than... <laughs> just wait. <laughs> it's, I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> Okay, one of our readers did this really well, okay? Gwen Jorgensen asked, What is the most Christ-like way of speaking the truth in love, especially in social media? Confrontation, question mark. I kind of suck at that, so I'm scared to answer. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, right? Like, I don't know. I think, I don't know, because I really struggle with this, and I have, I've, find myself growing more patient with other people when I feel like I've been unfairly treated online and I'm a little more reluctant to sort of, I don't go after people specifically. I just try to remember that the person behind the little avatar, little picture on the screen is like an actual human being, uh, going through things that I might not even be aware of. And I try, I try my best before, you know, before engaging people to think of them that way. And I think it's really important. I don't think, I think it's okay. And we shouldn't discourage people from disagreeing with one another. If somebody issues a public statement like the one that we're talking about today, 
you know, there's nothing unchristlike about standing up and saying, hey, this is unjust, this is wrong, uh, and calling it out and, and drawing attention to what's wrong with it. I just think it's important that you're accurate, uh, that you're honest, and, and that you represent what the person has said accurately, and that you're kind as much as you can be in the critique. So I kind of have that that as my mantra, sort of, you know, be accurate, quote people correctly, be honest and be kind. And you can still, I think, offer correction and offer, you know, disagreement. I think it's important too. It really bugs me when people say, oh no, what will the world say when they see us disagreeing with one another? And then they use that as justification for never, ever publicly disagreeing with other Christians. And, you know, I already heard that today when I had some things to say about this charisma article. It was like, oh no, we can't have the world see us disagreeing. And I kind of feel like, well, what will the world think if it doesn't see us disagreeing on this, if this sort of stuff goes completely unchecked? Uh, The same is true when we have, you know, abuse, sexual abuse scandals going down in churches. You know, this information is public. This is happening. To not draw attention to that, to not condemn it, and to not say, hey, we need to put things in place so that churches can prevent this from happening, you know, that that is just as bad a testimony, if not worse, to the so-called watching world, that silence to me is more problematic than, than speaking up at that point. So how do you think of, of unity, Rachel? Like, how do you see unity happening with such a, a diverse and fragmented church that has such passionate disagreement about so many issues. So many issues that's resulted in tens of thousands of denominations, literally. You know, I guess I struggle with it, and, I, and I'm not sure, but I, I think we have to be careful of confusing like unity with uniformity and thinking that uh, reconciliation happens when we're all on the same page, when we all think the same way theologically, when all of us have the same culture, the same background, which is just not going to happen. I mean, this is this has been a problem in the church from like day one. You can't throw together a bunch of slaves and masters, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and then just be like, oh, hey, everything's going to go really great, and there's going to be no conflict. I, I guess I, I think we need to get rid of the idea that being unified means not having conflict. Uh, you know, we're a family, so... We're going to fight like a family from time to time. And like a family, it's like you kind of have each other's backs at the same time, even though you'll just go at it when it's just the family. So I don't know. I guess maybe getting over this notion that we have to be uniform in our beliefs and in our culture and in our worship uh, and in all those things uh, before we can have unity around the person of Jesus Christ. Um, It gets complicated, like the fact that the, the author of this, article claims to be a follower of Jesus, you know, that, that complicates things. But I guess I would still, I would hear at the end of the day, I would break the bread of communion with that guy in a heartbeat. And because I don't know, there's something about coming to the table. It's such an equalizer in my mind um, that I don't know that at the end of the day, we're all sort of in need of that grace. That doesn't mean we don't call out terrible, abusive behavior. It doesn't mean we don't condemn it as unchristlike. It doesn't mean we don't say, this is wrong and I stand against this and I'm going to persistently stand against this. But I don't know, it seems like you can do that and still hold intention the reality. Well, this is a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, so 
Um, I'm not going to, I don't know. Is there I'm not any when people put like scare quotes around Christian? <laughs> Is there anybody that you won't go to the table with? No, there's not. Whoa. I, I know that sounds crazy, but the, I don't know. But I've been, I've been going to an Anglican church, so I'm in that like, the Eucharist solves everything mode, which I'm sure will pass. You know, <laughs> when I was an evangelical, it was that the Bible solved everything. Now the table solves everything. But, <laughs> uh, but, but no, I don't know that there's anyone I would refuse to go to the table with. I mean, I think you just have to be careful about like, I mean, I understand too that there are some churches that, for safety purposes, if there's an abusive person, um, they might need to work out ways to keep those people keep people from being further victimized. I get that, and that's that's a reality a lot of pastors have to deal with. But I just mean, I guess symbolically, uh, I think that 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 cup and that bread is is not meant for the worthy. It's meant for the hungry. So if you're hungry, come and the fact of the matter is I'm as hungry as the guy who wrote that article. Um, and maybe that would be a first step for us to making peace. I don't know, but that might be a little, little idealistic. Well, so on the one hand, I like agree. And my, my, my soul sort of sings like an excitement over that because, you know, someone reading charisma news, uh, and they read that, um, I think the Bible was written by people would say, well, he's not a Christian at all. Right. And so then I have this tendency to read this article about sterilizing Muslims and say, well, he's not a Christian at all. And then when you say things like we all come to the table, I get really excited and I say, yeah, that's how we fix it. But what if deport all Muslims now formed a militia and started kidnapping and killing Muslim women? Would you still go to the table with them then? And not just Rachel, anybody on the call, like, does that? Is that kingdom work? I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I would. I, I, I know that sounds nuts. I bet it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a hypothetical, so that's always a little difficult to deal with. But when Jesus says to love our enemies, I mean, that has to also mean enemies who identify themselves as Christians but are doing horrific things. I don't. I mean, I guess coming to the table to me has never been an endorsement of the person next to me or an endorsement of myself or our worthiness or our goodness or anything like that. Coming to the table is just, uh, you know, eating and drinking, you know, the cup of salvation and the bread of heaven and, you know, experiencing the presence of Christ together. But I don't know. I, I feel like I can draw lines and say this is wrong and this is right when it comes to ideas, uh, when it comes to what people are doing and actions and, and behaviors and all that sort of thing. But I can't really draw when it comes to, to people. I can't put somebody in that category of holy evil versus holy good, knowing that good and evil is just coursing through my veins uh, and that I have the same capacity for evil as the next guy. So while I think I can condemn people's words as evil and wrong and unchristlike, I can condemn their actions as evil and wrong and unchristlike. I don't know that I can write a person out and say, well, that's it. Like you've crossed some sort of invisible line and now you're not a beloved child of God. I, I don't know. But it's tricky. It's, you know, it's really tricky. I don't know. Is it is it tricky? Maybe maybe that's the whole thing. I don't Mike, what would, would you eat? What, what do you think? You go to the table with those people you said? Uh, well, so you got to remember, uh, I'm a Christian again, 
but there's still an atheist running around in my head. Um, and I still hang out with a significant number of atheists and humanists and free thinkers. And those friends of mine look at a situation like this and say, hey, Mike, I really love you and you're a good person, but you enable all those people because you do things like talk about radical forgiveness and it's they don't deserve forgiveness. And so I find myself torn between the part of my heart that uh, wants to drop the nets and follow and the part of me that um, evaluates the world based on evidence, suffering, and consent. Anytime people start advocating violence, oh man, do I really want to stand far, far away from that. So I don't know. I feel like I may have just learned something because something specific Rachel just said, um, I'm still processing, but coming to the table doesn't imply endorsement. And maybe that, when we talk about church unity, that's really what we're talking about. We're not actually saying, you know, hey, I stand for what you stand for. Uh, merely, I am broken in the way that you are broken. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what it is, honestly. And And I will say, you know, you can... Forgiveness is really for the benefit of the person who's been harmed. Uh, you know, you can forgive somebody and still keep distance from them, still condemn their actions, still, you know, keep a safe distance and, and try to keep them from hurting other people, abusing other people, killing other people. I mean, you can forgive somebody without um, sort of accepting their behavior or accepting their their words as true. So, you know, forgiveness, it doesn't necessarily even mean reconciliation sometimes. Sometimes we don't get the reconciliation we long for. But I think, you know, forgiveness doesn't mean an endorsement of the person or an acceptance of what they're doing. Uh, it just, it, it's more for the benefit of oneself and for, you know, really the, the people who are being hurt. It, it's, and then that means you have to kind of do it on your own time. You can't tell other people when they ought to forgive somebody. That's pretty important not to do but yeah I don't know though like I say this stuff and but like when it comes down to kneeling in front of the table next to somebody like the guy who wrote the article or other folks who with whom I've disagreed that that can be that's no easy task you know but we do have that one thing in common that that hunger that need that brokenness and which I think the table in the presence of Christ fills. there's any weird divide that I feel in kind of the modern Christendom world that I, I'm really not that interested in, a, in this like kind of beliefism. And that's the part of the church I was about for a long time. Like the whole, if we were honest with ourselves, the real thing we were doing was trying to get people to come to the front at church to convert their language, you know, like, I'm now a born-again Christian because I've prayed these prayers. And I'm not saying belief's not important. I think it is. And it's not even deeds on the other side of that to me. It's not belief versus deeds. To me, those things are together. To me, it's love. It, how do, it has to come down to love. By this, all men will know. Your love for one another. And I, I, I was in Texas a lot recently, uh, driving through the entire state of Texas. And um, I heard this Christian radio program come on and... At first, I was this this preacher. I was like, kind of with him, and he was saying, you know, belief is not just an ascent, a mental ascent. And I was like, yeah, cool. 
on Christian radio. That's great, you know. And then he was talking to this missionary that said, you know, if we would just call God Allah to the to the Muslim people, we would probably win a lot more people to Jesus because it's hard to the language thing. Like, and he said he went on this whole rant about that's not God's name. God has a name, and his name I was like. Is God's name spoken with a Texas accent too? Like, who? It's Arabic. That's God in Arabic. <laughs> that is the but name article, for God Jesus often used. This article says Allah, parentheses, Satan. Right. That really annoyed me. Oh, so I think when we look at the message of Jesus, when we say, when he would say, like, the people that are on his side, when people ask them like straight up the most pointed questions, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Or how do I, you know, what's the greatest commandment? It was like, you need to take care of kids and prisoners and strangers and give people water. And that's when the sheep from the goats, it was, you were with me when I was in prison and you were with me when I needed something to eat. And that's the people that are doing my work. And that's the people that are, if you want to use the word Christians, the people that are doing the work of Jesus, the people that are following Jesus. And I don't, there's some level, I, I mean, again, belief, I, the beliefs came, the people that follow Jesus came up with these creeds and came up with this language for a reason. I do, I do think it's important and, and it's beautiful. But if we use that language to kill Muslims or to sterilize Muslims, we have completely lost the Jesus that I believe those church, the church came up with these words for. And I want to be on the people's side that are doing the work of Jesus. Um, and I don't think that's just a side. I think that's a direction in history and, a, and a, a direction in reality and a calling towards a reality. And that's the Christ um, that I want to follow. So I think you just worked it all out for me. Like the whole thing now makes sense to me after that. Um, so let me put it in redneck ease as a southerner. Uh, and I'll, I'll call this a tale of two uncles right? I have one uncle who is a Southern Baptist preacher, right? He's a good guy. Uh, he's actually, frankly, a lot better human being than I am. Uh, he's very active in community service. He agrees with me on probably nothing theologically, um, but he's still my uncle. And um, if something's going on at a uh, church, and he's talking or he's sharing, I'm going to go and I'm going to listen because we're family and I'm going to enjoy it. And I have another uncle um, who's not with us anymore who was larger than life and kind of crazy. And uh, he used to capture wild animals and release them in weddings. <laughs> so he'd catch like a possum or a raccoon and he'd release them into a wedding right down the center aisle. And then he would let his coon dogs in after them. And so... <laughs> You would have this, like, cacophony uh, that was very funny, but also very, very destructive to these ceremonies, right? And, like, if he was still around, I would be totally comfortable saying, hey, man, you should really never release wild animals in a wedding. <laughs> but That's the money quote from the entire You are still my uncle. <laughs> You're still my uncle. You're still my family. So... This guy who has driven me to rage with this sterilized Muslim article, I get to say I disagree with him, but I don't get to say that he's not in my family. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's kind of how I see it too. Um, as tough as that is, but I feel really humbled. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I can keep podcasting. I might have to go pray for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I think when people hear, because you know, when Jesus was asked questions, he typically did not answer them in a really straightforward way. Usually, he told stories. Um, asked another question that was kind of like the way he engaged people but when people asked him a pretty important and direct question he was asked you know what is the most important element of what is biblical this is basically the question the person asked and jesus says love the lord with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself all the law and all the prophets hang on those commands and that's a pretty direct response and, and a pretty straightforward response that what is biblical? Well, it's love. What makes people Christians? Well, it's love. This is the, the thing that, that makes it all make sense. And I think the problem is a lot of people, when they hear us say that, oh, well, it's all about love, they have in their mind this like wishy-washy, everybody's fine, we're standing in a circle singing Kumbaya, notion of what that what we mean by that but like when we look at what jesus meant by it all comes down to love it it ends with him on a cross well it ends with him coming out of the grave but it, part of that is hanging from a cross looking at the people who put him there and saying father forgive them for they know not what they do i mean there's nothing mushy or sentimental or or easy about that so when you say well it all comes down to love that I believe that too, and and I think it's just sometimes when people hear that they have a different notion of what we mean by love. But what we mean by love is Jesus Christ, the the greatest example that as Christians we sort of have of love. So, and people, yeah, they don't they. I hear this a lot. Like, yes, you have to have love, but you also have to have truth, and you have to speak the truth in love, and that assumes that the ultimate truth is not love, right? Doesn't it? What's like assumes a dichotomy between those two. Yeah. 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 When it's just like love is the ultimate truth, really. I mean, it's it's, and when we say God is love, when we say perfect love casts out all fear, when they say you know you will know they are Christians by their love, and and you know all the law and all the prophet prophets hang on the command to love one another. I mean, it it it's it's there's nothing you know, easy or cheap or floofy that I made that word up floofy about it. It's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard road to choose. Well, but they explain that like they, Jesus explained that with the follow-up question. Well, who's my neighbor? Yeah. And he tells the good Samaritan, which I, I have heard remarked if that was told today, it would be the good Muslim or the good atheist. Yeah. So who's my neighbor? Well, it's, it's these Muslims that, this guy's talking about love is the to me the most ferocious to me love is what makes sense of jesus's most violent language you know like when he talks about hell when he talks about um gnashing of teeth to me that is it's not a well yes there's love and there's that like if that guy that wrote that article worked up the the you know intestinal idiocy, fortitude and, and the idiocy yeah to, to do what he actually believes should be done. And he tries to kill Muslims and tries to sterilize them or whatever. I don't think the loving thing from the rest of us should be like, well, you know, just love them, just send them a nice note that says, bless you, brother. The loving thing is to go and stop him. You know, like if it takes 
physically, you know, putting him in jail, but whatever it is, love would dictate this can't happen. That's it. So love is, there's nothing floofy to use Rachel's new word <laughs> about love. It is the, it is the direction towards good. Anything that moves us towards good in a real way to me is the essence of love. That's our movement. We're the love of your enemies, people. Um, that's it. That's what we're. That's what we're called to do. And it's crazy. It seems insane, and it seems impossible. But we are the people who are called to love our enemies. And I don't. You know, last week I, I don't know that I would have. I would have called. You know, charisma news my enemy. But I, I'd call myself an enemy of someone who says sterilize people or deport them or use violence against yeah. them. That's that's an enemy of an idea. Yeah. Well, maybe the Christian thing is to say that, yeah, it's not... That whole, like, um, we war not against flesh and blood. That is a, what a What a powerful idea. That there are these powers and principalities. They're like the systems and powers that Charisma News is operating out of and perspectives and beliefs and the things that whatever the powers, whatever the strings are that are allowing people that I believe have goodness in them and have some degree of light in them. I don't, I, I don't know that I ever believe anybody can be fully evil. Um, that there's something still of the image of God in them. There's something still beautiful in them. Um, and our war as those who love our enemies, is not against the Romans that do the crucifying. It might be against um, the systems and powers that allow the Roman and that force and and invite the actual Romans to do what they're doing. Um, But there's something about separating the flesh and blood from the enemies that I think is pretty Christian and pretty beautiful. Where's the art in that? Art. Art. Okay, art. So, okay, here's where we're only thing. There's not much to say, art, I don't think, that I can think of. Um, outside of, I think good art always has influence beyond a single tribe. And always, yes. and always stretches and pushes that individual tribe towards something that's not just safe within the four walls of that tribe. The friction that Rachel talked about that is, can even be a healthy thing. Um, I think it's in that space that art has a responsibility and a potential to, to speak between the lines and and the the way that art can be ambiguous just has this, it, it affords artists this amazing opportunity to speak to people outside of your tribe exactly because your art is more ambiguous it's not so clear like people can hear what they want from it and so people from different tribes can look at the same piece of art and we've seen this uh in our music i think that's part of the controversy that's been happening with some of the stuff i said about genesis it's people that thought i was in a one really specific tribe because of some of our lyrics um how it was interpreted were, were mad that I interpreted them differently or that somebody else interpreted them differently. Um, when I 
when I started talking in prose on podcasts and such things. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I, I have noodled about this quite a lot. Uh, you make beautiful things out of the dust is really deeply affirming to a young earth creationist, an old earth creationist, a theistic evolutionist. <laughs> like yeah. The whole gamut hears that line and they are all taken somewhere special. And that is both unifying, but also has this tendency for us to project our own ownership and identity onto the art that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think unity needs some sort of difference. Like Rachel alluded to, without difference, unity is just uniformity. And that's not, a, that's not unity. Uniformity is not very powerful for accomplishing amazing things. I mean, what great organization... Has I mean you know Apple wasn't not everybody is Steve Jobs at Apple. They you need people vastly different than Steve Jobs was at Apple to make Apple what it was. Every anything that's ever done anything great um, needs diversity of some kind within it. And um, any faith that becomes just this monochrome, uniform, uh, it's like automatons. Um, it's going to be extremely limited in what it can do. So I think artists, we can learn from and explore the fringes and, and hear from the other and, and let unity come from that tension. And I think we can, we can, I think we need to learn how to be okay with some tension within Christianity, within faith and, and learning how to deal with the other. I love that as an artist, I've been able to play in extremely conservative circles and very liberal circles at the same time. And it's helped me as an artist and it's informed our art. And it's, um, I think that artists can have a, a good role here. I love that like Matt Marr is an instance of, he's a Catholic guy um, that's a worship leader that's kind of well-respected in the Protestant world. And he gets played on Christian radio, which is an extremely Protestant world. And he goes in a lot of Protestant churches. And that's something that I don't think would have happened ten, even like 15 years ago, 10 years ago. I, I don't know. I think that's kind of a, a cool development. I mean, I remember as a, when I was in high school, most of the evangelical people that I knew didn't, wouldn't consider Catholics in the same faith, you know. Um, and it's, uh, a lot don't still. But a lot do now, which is kind of amazing. Um and that that a that a Catholic guy can have mainstream evangelical success, I think is kind of cool. Uh, so artists, we have a unique ability to kind of swim through different waters of difference, and if we can use that to push us all towards unity somehow, I think we have a, a good role in that because a lot of speakers and authors are have to be so specific that they'll easily get pigeonholed into camps. Uh, but artists, we have a we have a an ability to swim in the waters and, and invite this fish to come visit this fish. And, uh, you know, I think we should, for me, that's something that I've always wanted to, to try to do and find ways of doing. And that's a big, even part of the reason we started the liturgists to be able to have differences of opinion and different people from different perspectives. Swim together. Thanks for listening to the Literatures Podcast today. If you'd like to join us on Twitter, we would love 
to have you a private conversation. You can also go to theliturgist.com slash podcast to leave us comments. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, go ahead and go on iTunes and under the Liturgist. Thanks so much. I'm Lisa Pena. I'm Michael Gunger. I'm Science Mike. <laughs>